One Last Sketch Podcast, back by popular request. I am your guest host, Murphy Koshmarak. <laughs> and I'm Michael Wojcik, your usual host. Yep, yep. We have swapped places because Michael was like, I'm not reading all of these. <laughs> podcast is dedicated to science fiction fantasy and history because of that we've had quite a few previous episodes about dragons oh my god dragons yet another episode about dragons Uh, what are we reviewing slash reading slash talking about marie we are reviewing the lady trent memoirs authored by uh, marie bent brennan which is the pen name of the author um and there's five books in this series uh, first, The Natural History of Dragons. The second, The Tropic of Serpents. The third, The Voyage of the Basilisk. The fourth, In the Labyrinth of Drakes. And the fifth, Within the Sanctuary of, of oh. Wings. Which, um, you read the first one and said, I feel like I have no need to read any of these other ones. <laughs> Which is not to say that it was bad, because it wasn't. It was great! Yeah, it was but fabulous. I thought that I had... Just about everything that I needed out of that book, and not really of interest to follow the further adventures of Lady Isabella, Lady Trent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we brought up that Marie Brennan is a pen name, which we usually wouldn't, only because she shares her pen name with our host here. Yep. And it turns out that they share a lot more in common. It's very. I'm not somehow not surprised. I I already knew I had one doppelganger in the universe which i thought looked quite a bit like me and hadn't met but uh marie brennan is um she she kind of looks like me and you sent me a fabulous video where she's doing something that i would pretty well do (laughs) and she also loves dragons obviously and um madcap adventures so yeah the video was martial arts in a dress (laughs) yeah um uh, a, a restoration period dress, I believe. I believe it's actually a costume dress. She states in the video that she wears to book signings because an actual dress would be difficult to sit in. So it has, um, I believe it had like shorter bonings so that you could, you know, bend your legs and, and things like that. But it is in that style. It is not a, a actual historical piece. Um but yeah, she and she. I think she did Uechiru. I'm very sorry that I can't remember exactly which style. I do Gojuru, but that's kind of like they're pretty similar to each other. And she did a kata, and I was like, I, I feel like that's yeah. It's a, I'm. She just got to it before I did. Also, she wrote five books long before I've written, you know, any. So there's that too. When this book was first announced, the cover art caused quite a stir. Oh my god! And I remember beautiful. seeing it and going, "Oh, that's a Marie book." I mean, it has a dragon on the cover. We've been over this, like, several times before, that that's really all you need to do to float my boat when it comes to, will I crack open the book or not? Um, I will admit that um, choosing your uh, books based on there being a dragon on the cover will lead you to read books that you may need, like, just a lot of endurance just to get through. But I will say that these were not that kind of book and did, you know, pleasantly deliver what uh, is advertised upon all of the covers, all of them being beautiful. And I have them all, for aesthetic reasons, in hardcover in my library because 
I just felt I needed to complete this particular series. There are scientific illustrations of dragons done in early to mid-19th century style. Mm -hmm. They reflect the contents of these books very accurately. Yeah. I mean, we already established that I'm not reading the rest of the series, mm -hmm. but I did quite enjoy uh, this first one. Mm -hmm. It delivers on everything that that cover promises, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. And considering my tastes and predilections, we've already established that a lot of my reading guilty pleasures align very closely with that of a 14-year-old girl. Yep. And this book is very much like that. It follows in the tradition of dealing with dragons yeah. and all those other kind of middle grade books about adventurous young women. Low fantasy. Going out, <laughs> <laughs> going out into the world. This, In this case, with a big dash of Pride and Prejudice yeah. Victorian adventure because the setting is something like the mid 19th century. Yeah, I would say much more tongue-in-cheek than even Tooth and Claw, which featured dragons as the main characters. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about tropes. I would also say that these books are capitalizing on um, Dragonology, which has been out for quite a decade before. And this was like a, a book that was like re-released a couple times. It has like, here, I'll just pull it out because it's, look at arm's reach for me, of course. Um these had a whole bunch of sort of like the the same kind of idea that this would be like the natural history book written. It has all the like physiology. It has descriptions of eggs. It has like links to the um, mythology surrounding, but what they're actually like. And lots of like cool interactive bits. And this would be fun for like 10, 10 year old, nine year olds and me. <laughs> and uh, um, this also then would have kind of a series of like stuff of like smaller versions of this book and calendars that were kind of the same thing. So I feel like this kind of thing sort of primed people to hear the story of the kind of person that might write something like this, although the publishers are in no way related at all. Yeah. So now that we have the context out of the way, mm -hmm. let's launch into our discussion. Please. Absolutely. These are pretty enjoyable reads. We are going to spoil the heck out of them. In particular, if you're partway through the series and you haven't read the fifth book, you need to stop listening now because the fifth book um, turns everything on its head. So you're going to not want that bit spoiled. It would actually kind of ruin it, I think. Although for the other four books, not going to be ruined particularly because you know the character lives. It's written by her in her voice. So, you know... Um, should say about uh, just one last thing about Marie Brennan. We'll keep referring to her by that name. Um, that she doesn't, that she did do a large section of a PhD in anthropology, I believe. Um, we should be, she doesn't, uh, she might have like a master's equivalent in that kind of area of research, which you can kind of see reflected in her, um, attempts to bring the, the, the locales in which her characters are adventuring to life. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that as well. But just to give that, it's that she does have some background in that, though mainly people need to be good writers versus, you know, um, academics. So I think I'll give a really brief whirlwind tour of all five books. So a lot of things happen in each book. There, It's full of details, full of parentheticals, as I think you noticed constantly aside. It's like trying to have a discussion with a Victorian 
grandfather who just can't stop adding things. So I think it's written in that way partly to try to make the um, voice sound a little bit more kind of Dickensian because there's so much extra stuff. It also fills pages and um, it's it's fun. You if you don't if you like really clean writing like a Cormac McCarthy, you might find these books really irritating. So fair to say that you wouldn't like Dickens either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, also. Like I said, a lot of details happens, but the broad strokes are kind of, since it's sort of like a historical travelogue fantasy thing, it's mainly sort of the main events to kind of go around, uh, go around kind of national political events as opposed to necessarily the personal events in the life of the character, Isabella Lady Trent. She starts as Isabella something campers, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so. She, 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 like a Pokemon, she upgrades at each adventure until she eventually is like the Lady Trent by the fifth book. Um, her upgrades are always between books, so you don't actually get to see those parts happen. Um, so Natural History of Dragons begins with the character um, as a young child as well, with her interest in just uh, dragon physiology, dragon everything, um, transplanted into like 19th century century time period and um also then immediately we have a lot of this sort of question of can women do things it's all set in like pr- prior to women having the votes prior to women doing anything like wearing pants uh she breaks through the wearing pants whenever she goes out in the field so we get this kind of early life part um she meets a husband by the name of jacob and I think you you described him as being not interesting enough to survive to later stories. No, um, poor Jacob. He had to die for Lady Trent to have further adventures because he's just too boring. He's pretty well. He's he was just a big anchor attached to her ankle. Yeah. he's uh, After meeting Jacob, she... She, as a young teenager, um, Isabella was, you know, wild and wanted to study dragons. And then, for the sake of propriety, went through a period where she tried to, like, do what her family wanted to. She met Jacob. She married Jacob. Jacob kind of, like, you know, loves her and stuff. He's a really good person. Um, but he really just acts as a foil for her. The character of Lady Trent gets her on her first expedition, um... And then here I have to mention that these books uh, use the trope of call a rabbit a smirp the whole way through. So all places that are clear analogs to historical countries in our world are just called something else with a sometimes unwieldy name. So they go to... You will never remember it. You will never remember the names. But here they go to Vistrana, which is like uh, Romania, as far as we could kind of tell. Sort of... do you figure? I mean, it's somewhere. There's kind of also some sort of Norwegian-y sort of bits to it. They use saunas. <laughs> it's uh, the closest is kind of Romania or mm-hmm. any of the duchies that are bordering on the Russian Empire. Yeah, there's mountains. In the 19th century. <laughs> Everyone has Slavic names. They have a high old time looking at the rock worm dragons. The main there's also like technological events that happen in each kind of story. In this story, they're talking about uh, physiological property of dragon bones, which is that they disintegrate and disappear after they die completely uh, within a few hours. And they're talking about the process of trying to stop this, which I believe is discovered in this story 
fine. There's a whole lot of shenanigans of running around trying to find the uh, chemical properties of people poaching dragons because dragon bone, since dragons fly and they're big, have really light bones, but they're very strong when they're preserved. And so that's all the running around that happens there. Jacob dies and all this. Um, and uh, But uh, the Lord Hilford, who like finances the expedition or whatever, survives. And also Lady Trent meets Jacob Willeker, who's an important person because he's going to also accompany her on her adventures as a platonic male friend. But initially they hate each other, so you know they're going to be best friends by the end. And, yeah, and yeah. these plot <laughs> elements and stuff about technology are very much secondary. I yeah. <laughs> I found myself yeah. not caring about most of them when I was reading it. The nope. best parts for me was just reading about Isabella going, I want to study about dragons! Let yeah. me find all the ways and use every little bit of social power that I can to make this happen. Yeah. She's very clever as a character. She's really well written, I think. It would be exactly like if you had this kind of person in that kind of circumstance. So I will say that that's pretty accurate. I'm giving the highlights of the political and technological stuff because um, it sort of informs why things progress as they do. All the little bits of how cool Isabella is in her interactions and the ridiculous stuff that goes on socially with every people person she meets. She has a foot she has a foot in mouth syndrome all the time, and uh, it's not very politically savvy and just into science kind of way. But I can't give you all those details. You have to read the book for that. That's what you read it for, as you pointed out. So that's a natural history of dragons. On to the Tropic of Serpents, um, in which they travel to. Um, I believe the country's called Bayembe, in which the Ikwende live. It's sort of a West African analog in this case. Um, by this point, uh, Isabella is obviously a widow, and she does have a child who she leaves at home for this adventure. Um, they're... Now, why did they go down? I know she, it's always because she wants to study dragons. I'm trying to remember exactly what the reasons for. Oh, yeah, she has an expedition that is... Um, financed by Lord Hilford again, I believe, and uh, Tom Wilker wants her to come because she does have good, like, scientific ability and stuff. So, brings her... Is uh, it Tom Willeker or Jacob Willeker? It's Tom, because Jacob's her husband. Okay, you said yeah. Jacob earlier. Did I? Sorry. Sorry, it's Tom Willeker. See, the other characters don't really matter. Yep. <laughs> Highly interchangeable. <laughs> um, Completely so, agreed. Yeah. So this is an um, encounter between um, Lady Trent's country and basically black West African countries. Um, I should point out probably that the the Smirp name for English in this universe is Skirling, which is, I think, probably the worst name choice that Murray Brennan made because I don't feel like Skirling really suits um, easily or is easy to say or remember. Um, but anyway... Run around down there. Uh, there's all kinds of political. It's a war torn. There's kind of kind of Congo stuff going on too. Um, and finally, she ends up um, going on a further adventure into a locale called Moulin, which is a pretty dense jungle area, and discovering some stuff about dragons, which is primarily that um, in the drag in the dragons in West. West Africa, I was going to say, the dragons in Bayembe and Moulin are, um, have kind of like a queen and drone uh, style of reproduction 
And this is discovered when she does some hang gliding because she's an adventure lady. So hang gliding becomes like a big moment. That's the climax of the book, probably. And then there's some war stuff that goes on too. And a lot of um, cultural relations with the Moolish who live in the jungle versus the uh, Ikwende and Tisbani. I don't know how to say the names. They are also made is up. There, <laughs> is there any engagement with colonialism or... We'll be talking about that. I'm giving the okay. summaries. <laughs> yes. Yes, there is. Remember, it's the 19th century, guys. Although the dates are like in some made-up calendar as well, because January and February and like 19-whatever were not good enough for Marie Brennan. Book the third, The Voyage of the Basilisk. It's a slog. Um, it's a fun slog, don't get me wrong. There's just a lot of things to go through. All right, this is basically set in the South Pacific. Um, this uh, this story, Isabella's going around looking at sea serpents, again with Tom, and also brings her son, who I think is like 10 or preteen or something around this time. She also meets Sue Hale, who will be an important figure in later books. Hint, hint, he's going to marry her in the fourth one. <laughs> and uh, he's an archaeologist, so kind of, sort of, kind of, it, more interesting and adventure, adventuresome person. Uh, there's a lot of banging around in the islands. They go to China, which is called Yilang in these books. Uh, she gets excommunicated <laughs> for trying to stop them from um, killing dragons. The reason they're killing dragons is that everyone has figured out how to preserve the bones, and this leads to, like, one of the most ridiculous things. Because last time there was hang gliding, now there are, like, zeppelins and blimps. So the first kyligers, as they're called, are constructed in this, and they're, like, being tested in the South Pacific by Yilang, I think, to mount a war effort to, across the mountains to attack Skirling and their colonies. That's a background thing. The princess of Skirling has been kidnapped. This accidentally occurs while they're busy doing, like, their dragon research stuff. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, we all know that the <laughs> longer that a book set in a vaguely 19th century <laughs> setting, the longer that series goes the more likely a Zeppelin is to appear. So <laughs> I'm impressed well. that it, it took three books Indeed. to get there. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and then the main areas that they're in are called the Kiongan, I think it's the name, or Puyin is kind of the name for like um, what we would call, I can't remember the names of our own country, ethnic and countries and ethnic groups in the actual world now. Um, like, oh no, it's all mixing ah! together. The world's <laughs> colliding. Anyway, they bang around. They do, uh, they also discover further things of these ancient ruins from the Draconians, which are mentioned in the very first book. They seem to be kind of like innocuous and like infrequently mentioned. They're just kind of peppered through. They she finds like um a sort of a in the second book she did find a um it's basically the Rosetta Stone version of uh, this language uh, while she was in the jungle of Moulin. In this book, they she and Sue Hale investigate this chamber, which has some preserved firestone, which it turns out to be like albumin from dragon eggs of this ancient civilization. And there's a lot of stuff about uh, translating the scripts, and that's interesting for him since he's an archaeologist, but he is called back home. Uh, he is from Akia, which is where she's going to go in the fourth book, which is Saudi Arabia, basically. And... Um, yeah, there's lots of stuff around Draconians put in. They have all these statues of um, dragon-headed figures who um, 
and, and with wings and tails, and they're this was kind of like we wonder what the meaning of these things are in, in all their um, internationally assorted um, what you call it societies. Yeah, it's just that they they spread. They were on the entire world. It's an ancient defunct civilization, kind of like known for I don't know falling apart at some point. It's lost in mystery and myth, and you think it's just well, color, but yeah. Yeah, in the first book, it's set up to have monumental architecture that resembles mm-hmm. Egyptian stuff. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the geographic spread, it's more like stumbling across a Roman ruin. Anywhere, basically yeah. anywhere around the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> but this is in the entire world because they're in the, basically the South Pacific in this case, and they're also there. So that's what happens in the third book. Fourth book in the Labyrinth of Drakes. Um, this is where. No, this was actually one that I liked quite a bit. I would say the least happens in it. Um, I feel like that's the tenor of all these books, that what's happening is not as enjoyable as the faffing about between the plot points. Pretty well. She just stumbles around and is just constantly lucky. Um, Basically, they're in Saudi Arabia. It's called Akia. The the name there's they were sent there as part of a from a military funded mission to try to figure out how dragons would could be bred because they need to get dragon bone to make their own zeppelins to fight the Yilang um, threat. There's now the political background. Why would you need zeppelins if you have I, dragons? Uh, you can't ride them. They are too wild. You cannot make them make them do anything. This is... So it's more like uh, Pit Dragon Chronicles or something yes. like that. Yes, the dragons cannot be controlled, ever. <laughs> I mean, she did ride a sea serpent in the third one, but riding is more like not thrown off a Mustang kind of thing. <laughs> um, in this one, they go down to, and they set up their House of Dragons. I think it's called Dar al Um There's some interactions between like various desert tribes as um, kind of actually, from what I understand from my Saudi friend, kind of matches some of Saudi history vaguely as um, the central figure. um, I think they call it the Caliph. Uh, My apologies for me, Brennan, if I don't totally remember every detail. Um, Is pulling together all the tribes. There's defecting tribes. She gets kidnapped. There's running around. She gets rescued by Suhail. Turns out Suhail is the brother of, like, one of the... uh, high up dudes there and since they are all the religions are all different the religious analog here would be muslim and um so it's not okay that he would that he was banging around with her in the south pacific they end up just suddenly getting married at the end of the book because to hell with it basically and apparently it's okay and all kinds of stuff anyway this is what he looks like just for you michael see he's much more um exciting yeah than jacob yeah Yep. While Marie holds up these illustrations that nobody listening to this podcast nope. would see, nope. it at Got least establishes the fact that all of these books are illustrated. Yep. Not with the same kind of beautiful scientific drawings yeah. on the covers. No. Uh, they're, they're more a little traditional pencil yeah. art kind of sketches the, there. I think they're supposed to be her sketches because she, throughout the entire books, has her one of her main field skills is being able to capture drawings of specimens. So I think it's supposed to be her sketches. Um, but they are done by the same um, artist who does the cover art. Um, anyway, they bang around in there. They go into the desert. Uh, they go into the Labyrinth of Drakes, which is like a sort of 
actually like Badlands kind of area. If you've ever been to like the middle of, of Alberta and Canada, it's, I think it's like that. Um, and they find another big like um, draconian chamber because, and this is very Egyptian overtones here, and they discover that they were able to breed dragons at that time. And the other big scientific discovery is that the temperature at which dragon eggs are reared results in major physiological differences to the dragon created. And that the dragons may not be so much different species as they are just born under different conditions and are one species. And they call this developmental liability. Or sorry, liability, not liability. It's not a liability at all. They call it developmental liability. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and... Yeah. So then she's married to a cool archaeologist, and she ends up becoming... Oh, yeah, the whole military thing gets, um... The funding gets cut because they discovered how to make synthetic dragon bones, so they don't have to kill dragons anymore, so the whole breeding program is no longer required. Well, that's so just, convenient. Yeah, they just all found a faster ground out there. They kept it going for, for to, like, other secret reasons, and that allowed them to do this other cool discovery. And they got to go home. Also... Dragons are no longer going to be, like, just slaughtered to extinction because of the need to, like, feed the war machine. So, yay! Blimps for free! (laughs) Alright! Oh my god, this is already taking forever. Fifth book! Within the Sanctuary of Wings. Oh my god! (laughs) Within the Sanctuary of Wings. So again, if you have been listening to this point, don't listen beyond this if you're still reading this. It's going to ruin everything. Basically, they go to Tibet. That's <laughs> where they go. And the Himalayas are called the Murtaima uh, Mountains. There's a small village called Halamsi Rong where they begin. Um, politically, the basically, the Tibetans are trying to get free of the Chinese. I'm not going to call them by their names in the book. It's just too confusing. <laughs> and, and I don't remember what they all mean. And uh, they go to England slash Skirland and get, like, um, English support for their effort to separate, which is given because she asks her, like, political friends, because now she's a lady, so she can do that. And ultimately, because one of the uh, Tibetan explorers, while being hired by the uh, Chinese, was found what he thought was a um, dragon carcass preserved in ice. And she's like, this looks different. I must go see it. And therefore changes the political landscape so she's able to go. So, yeah. And also they take a blimp in, which is fun. More flying. Um, I think the fourth book is the only book in which she doesn't fly in some way. Does she fly in the first one? No, she doesn't. Never mind. No, she doesn't fly in the first one. Yeah, that keeps happening. They go in, they go up to the mountain because they think that there's a second preserved carcass there that they can find. Weather conditions and and mountaineering is like the main extra stuff that comes up in here. They're looking at like also some other small dragon species that go on. Her son is not in this on this journey. Her son has run away to uh, join a, a, a guy seafaring because her son's really into marine biology in the end of all of this. Um, they go up to the carcass, they find the carcass, but then here's the dramatic reveal. The carcass has, like, a human body with a dragon head. So, all those statue set up things, you're like, oh, okay. That's an actual thing. Then there's promptly a avalanche at that moment of reveal. She gets separated and falls actually into this, uh, the Sanctuary of Wings, as, as it will be called, which is kind of like a central valley protected by mountains on all sides. And there she discovers the still-living Draconians who are dragon-headed, winged people. 
and have always been. And they just lived in this tiny little area in the middle of these mountains. So now it's really what we really needed right now was Lovecraftian lizard men. Pretty much. So this is the book that just like all that previous stuff that was tripping along. Heck with that. Now we're on to like this kind of thing. So then it's all about her figuring out the language, which she's kind of better at doing because her husband was an archaeologist and did all this language stuff and she knew some of the ancient draconian. And it's all about her trying to interact with the ones that rescued her. Most of the other draconians are uh, hibernating because that's how they get through the winter. And uh, she's just out with these three sisters who basically are awake through the winter as part of the social organization to watch the sheep. (laughs) So... Um, yep, that all happened. And then the final bits of the book are all about trying to figure out how how are they going to introduce draconians to the world. Um, her trying to figure out how she can get back. She happens to run into Suhail and Tom, like, coming, not Tom, sorry, Suhail and one of the other, um, the other guide, I think his name's Fu, um, just as she was about to leave, so many coincidences that just occur, fortunately for her. And then there's more shenanigans with blimps and uh, people from Skirling, and then they end up taking Draconians over to Yilang, because they're going to help the Tibetans overthrow the Chinese, basically, and that's how the war ends. And they go home. And that's the end. That's the end of her memoirs, is that. Yep, that was a lot. That was a lot. Sure a lot. (laughs) Um, I like Tor's um, uh, take on this. I read somewhere on the website. It's Downton Abbey, but with dragons. Kind of true. So a lot of things happens, I'd say it has the difficulty of most kind of stories, like the Dragon Ball Z has this difficulty of challenges have to get more crazy difficult as the um, main character sort of levels up to meet those abilities. And this ends in this, in this, utterly ch- in this utter change of what kind of series we have in the fifth book. So there's the synopsis, Michael. What do you think of all that? Have a... Have have I made you want to read it more? Do you feel that you were good where you were? (laughs) Well, the reason I think that you're so comfortable just relating the whole plot and spoiling all these points is because, as we mentioned earlier, doesn't seem to really matter. No, honestly, you could still read these knowing what's going to happen in the fifth book, and you'll have fun. Because this is exactly the kind of series that you know exactly what you're in for, and it gives you exactly what you want when you open it and sit down and read it. Yeah, and that was part of the reason why I didn't continue on, because got what I wanted out of that first book and went, if it's more of the same, I would rather just read yeah. other stuff. But from what you've yeah. described, it sounds like there's some power creep going on, mm-hmm. which is when you have a character and you decide that the trajectory you're going to put that character on is to make them stronger and smarter and uh, mm-hmm. more powerful with each book in the series, which means it escalates mm-hmm. to points that maybe don't make that much sense. Yep. Also, she helps all women get the vote, so, you know, <laughs> she did that too. <laughs> Why not? It happened yeah. in... Um, Tooth and Claw, so... Yes, exactly. <laughs> where one character just becomes a social activist because it's yeah. that kind of novel. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, my first sort of... I've, we're now into, like, the, the talking points I've been thinking of. And one of my first questions is, is it entertaining? Absolutely, yes. These books are really fun to read. Um, we'll get into one caveat for that in, in a minute. One thing I wanted to point out, though, is that I had this weird sensation when I was partway through the fourth book 
when I noticed that the cadence of the whole series mirrored the cadence of the Chronicles of Prydain, not in terms of quality and not in terms of what's happening, but in terms of just the kinds of things that hap- that occur in each book, like the Book of Three and the Natural History Dragons is a big kind of adventure setup. The Black Cauldron and the... What's the one? Tropic the Tropic of Serpents. of Serpents is like the first real adventure. And then the um, Castle of Lear and the Voyage of the Basilisk is like another adventure a little bit plus with some extra detail stuff thrown in. And then Terran Wanderer, and which is my favorite one in Chronicles of Prydain 2, and in The Lab of the Drakes are this kind of like soul-searching, sort of not much happening, recollecting for the final shebang end of the within the Sanctuary of Wings and the High King where lots of different stakes arise. So I kind of wondered if the power creep and these other things is just like probably like just a typical setup for a five-part fantasy series. Like this is sort of the natural kind of cadence that these books go through. And considering everything else we know about Marie Brennan and how she and you align very closely, <laughs> I would not be surprised if the Lloyd Alexander connection was there as well. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it's like a conscious connection, but it's no. <laughs> pretty common. I mean, I've read a decent number of fantasy series with dragons on their cover or other things, and this seems to happen in five parts as opposed to trilogies, which usually have the downtime just in the middle book, kind of, you know. All right, let's talk about some tropes. There's a lot of tropes. Um, particularly the Mary Sue trope is, I think, has to be addressed. <laughs> Well, let's dig into that, because Mary Sue is a term that has become essentially meaningless in mm-hmm. criticism now, because mm-hmm. everybody seems to have a def- different definition. Mm-hmm. So, Marie, what is the definition you're working for? The definition I'm putting in purely is that it's easy to insert yourself as a modern female into Isabella Lady Trent, and just work that way. And also that the Mary Sue is powerful. Because everything that happens in these books, as much as she's she's demure and humble, she she does fucking everything in this in this world. It seems <laughs> like politically, scientifically, personally, she like everything happens because of her intervention specifically. So it's the insertability and sort of the all powerful plot focus that I that I'm using for my Mary Sue definition here. Mm-hmm. So Isabella is a wish fulfillment character. And we say that mm-hmm. knowing that there's a lot of uh, negative connotations that come with that. I don't mm-hmm. carry of those, any of those. Wish fulfillment mm-hmm. characters are fine, <laughs> as long as yeah. the books they're in are fun to read. Yeah. Um, there's no particular issue with that. I think this particular character is a very well-done example of that. Yeah, because she isn't just a blank slate. She has a bunch of personality traits. Uh, she's not just clumsy for no reason, and that's the only mm-hmm. uh, thing that separates her from anyone else. That is mm-hmm. not what's no. happening here. She is a character you wish you were, mm-hmm. as opposed to, I'm already this person, and I'm just mm-hmm. blundering around in this book. It would be more like if you were trying to play a video game to the best ability, this track would be like Isabella Lady Trent, right? It would be the ideal thing um, if you went through the levels, if it was a narrative in that sense. Um, like, and she, she's very clever in responding to sort of like the gender constraints that are set up for her. I think it does a, the Mary, Mary, Marie Brennan (laughs) did a very good job of, um, trying to put in, what is it like if you take someone who's exactly like a 2016, 2018, like mindset sort of person, 
throw them into this time period, but also try to recognize that they're actually also from that time. So even though she has like lots of modern ideas that we would say would be our kind of tropes and ways of interacting, she does sort of like fit within the world pretty well. I'd say the world building, even though there's like so much stuff, is pretty decent in terms of just having things for her to interact with and that that all kind of fits together fairly well. Um, so, it, and there's kind of moments where it's not like that she's a Mary Sue that's kind of just taken on. She's pretty active in what she does. And she's pretty, and she has some pretty clever solutions at moments. And since the narrative is told from her view, you get her kind of opinion on something. But even even though you get her opinion, you also get the sense that um, what she did at the spontaneous moment and the way she's reporting it may not always align 100%. Being a memoir and all, that's yeah. kind of what yeah. you'd expect. Yeah, but not so much so as like... Um, but not an unreliable narrator situation. No. But the broad strokes of what <laughs> yeah. she's saying, you're pretty sure are what's actually happening in the story. It's yeah. not layers upon layers and... Actually, she was the villain all along. No, <laughs> it's no. not that kind of book. So she's a, she. I would say she does have some Mary Sue characteristics. She may just be a Mary Sue, but she's someone that you would like to talk to or like to be around, and that you would probably aspire to be. Um, I think we can probably leave that trope unless you have any other comments there. As with another character we discussed many episodes ago, she's designed to be likable and compelling. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. The Colorabitus Smirp. I just had to bring it up again more formally, because I sort of wish that there wasn't quite so much of this in these books. I, I think it's always a hard call to make as an author, whether you're going to completely make a new universe um, with different terms and names and languages and religions, or if you're just going to kind of say it's like an alternate history to Earth. I sort of feel like maybe doing alternate history to Earth might have been better because it would just have been easier to read and I wouldn't have be going, which friggin' country is that supposed to be in the fourth book by the time I've forgotten the details from like the first and second book? Um, I do I do understand it because it does give like the ability for um, Mary, Marie Brennan to kind of have a little more license with her, with the with what she's doing because they are ostensibly made up. Which brings me into kind of the other trope of the fantasy counterpart cultures, which is kind of the one that that made that I thought we should spend some time on because it's in the first book that you read. They're in kind of like a Slavic world, which is still kind of like a white group of people, um, but in the other four books, they're not. And it's um, it, it's this. I wonder if uh, how well we might feel Marie Brennan's maintain the balance between having a character that is just sort of steeped in her way of being in the, sort of these Victorian mores and having a world that actually fits those Victorian mores, which would be kind of a racist depiction of most groups. Yeah, you don't really see that explored in the first book because the line mm -hmm. isn't so much there besides some throwaway comments mm -hmm. on the part of Isabella about, well, these people are kind of mean and these people are... Or mm -hmm. I didn't understand these people at first, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And when you start branching that out and having this one-to-one -one correlation between cultures, well, is Skurland or whatever the heck this country <laughs> called, how much is it actually like England? How much 
is there already a buildup of this idea of scientific racism that justifies mm-hmm. imperialism and even the project which Isabella is on of scientific discovery and going out in the 19th century from the British Empire was a colonialist project mm-hmm. of kind of mapping the world, naming the world, and taking ownership over it and control. Yeah. Which not addressed in the first book at all. I don't know if it's addressed in the other books either. It's. I think she does. I think she tried. I, now the one that's like furthest in my memory is honestly the second book, which is too bad because that is where they go to like Africa and there's most like white black interaction there. Um, and I remember being vaguely uncomfortable in that book. I think the way Marie Brennan tries to rescue that problem is that she doesn't make um, Isabella naive to other cultures and then reflect on this naivety as she's writing the memoir. And she also, I think, kind of gets around it because Isabella's response to a lot of different cultural things is from the scientific empiricist view. So she's so she's always kind of rash, rationalizing in that kind of way and then sort of says things that it's like, that's my thing on it, but other people are experts in this area. And it's... I don't know. The, my problem is that we're both white people kind of talking about this. Um, so I'd really wonder how someone who was black or someone who was Middle Eastern or South Pacific Islanders or Tibetan Chinese might feel about it. Because it's sort of, as much as I say these books are really fun and entertaining, I wonder if it's going to be fun and entertaining for all audiences on the same level or if it's going to feed into the kind of implicit biases that are just general in pop culture. And in the wider world of science fiction and fantasy criticism, you don't hear much about these aspects, about these books, Mm -hmm. or much of any books, really. The general attitude is, oh, they're exploring other cultures. It's not medieval Western Europe. This is great. Mm -hmm. And then the reviewer pleads ignorance, Mm -hmm. and that's the extent to which the review goes to address these aspects which might say a lot about what the reviewing landscape in science fiction and fantasy is like. Yeah, and I think the whole thing has a white blindness to it because the reviewers and the publishers and a large proportion of the consumers might be white or like the targeted audience might be white. Um, And probably people just kind of don't want to get into the politics of difference, which is really difficult to enter into. I think Marie Brennan's trying very hard to give like an accurate kind of anthropological look of this. Having an accurate anthropological look is going to be from a Western anthropological um, viewpoint, however. So that still kind of doesn't get out of that problem. I don't think it's possible necessarily for a white author, white character kind of thing like this to get out of that problem. Because I feel like if you don't write, write in other cultures you're accused of being exclusionary and if you do write them in you're accused of kind of what we're wondering about with this is whether or not you kind of created this false static orientalist view um and i don't have any good solutions towards that either yeah it can go either way where you have a book like lloyd alexander's the iron ring where there was a review a while back where someone was uncomfortable with it because it's set in a fantasy counterpart to india Mm -hmm. but that reviewer didn't know anything about India mm-hmm. or the history of India to be able to say anything about it. And that was, that's the extent of the discussion that happens yeah. with these fantasy novels. 
And it's sort of funny because you bring up the Iron Ring, but then if you bring up the Arcadians, which is set in like Greece, Greece, people kind of go, eh, a bit more, right? Because it just depends on which culture we're looking at and where the tensions are highest, probably in current like political philosophy discussions. It's it is just generally difficult, I would say. Um, I wish that th- that we could be more intelligent about this, and love to hear comments on from someone if they'd have a better take on the, on approaching this. But having done some work in a little bit of work in f- political philosophy, I already know that we're not going to find any kind of easy single party line. There's going to be many different interpretations, and I suppose you'd have to kind of decide: Do you want to constrain? artists not being able to try or not that might be that's probably a false binary actually but the gist of that is that i i think that these books do a pretty decent job of trying to both like mint like uh, like keep it on the up and up that this is like a an obvious like um smash up against a culture but uh, nevertheless there's some kind of narrative things that happen and just some perspectives that are probably implicit in the author and in the character and so, yeah. That, that does that. lead to another bit of discussion I wanted to yeah. steer us towards, which is this problem does arise because of the fantasy counterpart culture that everything that I saw in Natural History of Dragons was almost a direct one to one correlation, even if it wasn't, for mm-hmm. say, 100% or accurate, mm-hmm. and purposely so. I don't think it was a case of just. I'm ignorant about this thing, but I'm going to insert this culture anyway. Mm-hmm. These choices were actively made, mm-hmm. but they're close enough that you forget the names of the fantasy place because it's too close to the real place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is an approach to world building that, uh, let's contrast it to the Earthsea books, for mm-hmm. example, where you have uh, people of color who are the mm-hmm. main characters, but the cultures that they inhabit in this world... There are little bits and pieces that are inspired by real-world cultures, but the actual islands don't have any one-to-one correlation, don't exist outside of the setting mm-hmm. that they're in. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think Marie Brennan spent a lot of time researching this. As much as we talk about these as being kind of fun, low-fantasy books, I think they were a lot of work to really write the way that she wanted to. Um, but... I, I, but then uh, I wonder too if, like, she, if with her ability, she could have probably created her own cultures, probably more accurate, uh, more like with more breathing space for it. But I guess then maybe you lose the ability to have the Victorian travelogue if you do that too much. If you're like too far away from the counterparts, there are merits to either approach. In this mm-hmm. case, she's going for a very specific atmosphere. Mm-hmm. and feel to the writing and it's mm-hmm. an atmosphere feel that's very rooted to a particular time and place mm-hmm. in real human history mm-hmm. well there are other books where mm-hmm. the societies are completely constructed mm-hmm. both of them are equally hard to do well it is sort of a cleaner world in a certain sense like there's not a whole whole lot of reference to like any history of any slavery in this world which is sort of you know i think a choice to try to keep that um, probably just to try to dampen out the difficulty. And it's interesting that, like, China becomes, like, the main adversary to England in this, like, war. Vaguely, I can't, as far as I can tell, North America and South America don't exist in this world, nor Australia. Um, it's all kind of just Europe, Asia, Africa, 
and the islands in the, in the southeastern Pacific. So, or South Pacific, where, you know, sorry. <laughs> and I can at least see in that case why it's not an alternate history, because when you brought up the mm-hmm. plot point about the Chinese killing dragons to make zeppelins, mm-hmm. uh, if we were to posit that dragons were indeed a real thing in the real world, which is something like uh, Her Majesty's Dragon, mm-hmm. Naomi, the Temeraire series, mm-hmm. Naomi, Naomi Novik does, mm-hmm. that would be like an immediately... That culturally makes no sense. Why would they ever do that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, well, she, it's funny you bring that up because she, I think this speaks to the research she did because it is, it was taboo to kill dragons in the Yilangese, as the Chinese name, culture in this world. It was happening as a, as a result of the political pressure to build the things, the Kailagers, and it was kind of like the, the political stress was enough prior to that I think it wasn't okay and indeed they use the sort of like location of the dragon as like an important sort of myth not not mythological in this case but cultural figure towards like some of their efforts near the end of the fifth book so she's pretty clever but um so some of the territory she kind of I feel like she she she's like on this tightrope and um balances fairly well I don't know that I'm qualified to fully make that uh, call though so I have to make the same claim that the other white editors make. <laughs> but what we are qualified to criticize is the naming conventions in these books. Oh my god. <laughs> I can see that she's trying to make the words that sound like other dialects, but I was just like, Tolkien did this better. So, a lot better. And, uh, ugh. It's just really hard to read. Yeah. You brought right. up at an earlier conversation about the calendar. Mm-hmm. And how this goes down to the days of the week have funny names, just yeah. as much as the months and so on. Yeah. And if yeah. you're having the conceit that this is a translation from fantasy language into English, there is a line that you cross when you're just like, I'm just gonna invent a calendar system. And mm-hmm. unlike Tolkien, I'm gonna actually use it in this book and not throw it in the appendix. I feel like we've talked through most of the things we could talk through on this book. I was thinking that maybe we could make some more points about feminism, but I think we already did that with regards to kind of the relation to gender. And I think I think Marie Brennan does like a feminist uh, narrative a little bit better than she might have done have done like a difference politics narrative. So yeah, maybe we should move on to closing points. I think. At this point, I would recommend the book as fun, like we've already talked about for a good proportion here. There might be some sort of racial sticking points that um, probably bear thinking about. Well attempted, I think probably well achieved, but um, again, with the caveat that I'm I'm a white person. Um, and I don't know. What do you, what, what, I would recommend them generally still. What do you think, Mike? Well, I like the first book. As we've already said several times, I don't plan on reading more, which is why I was fine sitting here and getting entirely spoiled on the plot going forward. Mm -hmm. It's very much one of those, if this is the sort of thing that you like, then you will like this thing. If you read Dealing with Dragons when you were younger, if you like Tooth and Claw, Mm -hmm. if you read a lot of Jane Yolen, and we'll fall for any book with a dragon on the cover. If your name these is Marie. Books, <laughs> these books were written for you. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's ex- 
delivers almost exactly what you expect from the cover. Yeah. So you really can judge this particular book series by its cover. Uh, so yeah, if you're in a bookstore, you see it, you go, oh, that is a cool picture. You are going to like the book. If you really like the first one, like Marie did, then you're Have gonna at her. read the whole series. You're gonna <laughs> eat it like popcorn. You're not gonna be able yeah. to stop. Yeah, that, that was the problem with them. I had work to do, but so much book to read. <laughs> so yeah, it's a very calculated book series written to a very particular audience. Yeah, uh, I would, I would also takes some skill. So yeah. Oh yeah, I would generally say very well done to Marie Brennan. Um, and I think that's that's it then. So um, you can say your usual podcast ending things now, Michael. As guest host, I have no idea what the script is. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the One Last Sketch podcast. This has been Michael and Marie. You can find me at onelastsketch.wordpress.com. I'm also on Twitter at One Last Sketch and on DeviantArt at One Last Sketch. You can find back episodes on my website through iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Where can we find you, Marie? Well, frequently, not frequently at all, infrequently at yatropexy.wordpress.com. I regret the name (laughs) and wonder if I should change that. Anyway. To something that's easier to spell. Yeah. Now that I've spent all this time criticizing Marie Brennan on her language names, I have to really think about myself, so... This is an irregular podcast. The last time we recorded an episode was in April of 2018. Uh, So we don't have a set schedule. We don't announce what we're going to do the next time. This is a however we feel like it, when we like it sort of deal. That being said, if you like the episode, uh, leave a review either at iTunes or on my blog. If you have any answers to the questions that Marie raised through this entire episode, please contact with me. Me, We have a contact link on my website and mm-hmm. you can pass questions on or any thoughts that you had. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening and until next time, whenever that may be. Mm-hmm. We out! We out!